Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a talk by Doug Ellis, co-founder of the Windy City Pulp and Paper Show. He discusses 120 years of the Argosy, the world's first pulp magazine. The presentation featured numerous examples of covers from Argosy magazine. Visit the Pulp Event Podcast page at the Pulpnet for a link to a gallery of covers. This was recorded on July 23, 2016 at Pulp Fest 2016 in Columbus, Ohio. All right, well, notwithstanding the name of this presentation, obviously this will not be a leisurely survey of Argosy. Um, I'll generally avoid discussing artists or other topics that David Saunders touched on uh, yesterday on his talk, but I'll deal with some other aspects of Argosy during its run. While the period primarily concerned with in my um, presentation tonight is with Argosy as a pulp, where it lasted for 47 years and over 1,500 issues, making it by uh, far the pulp with the most issues, um, I'll take a brief look at the pre- and post-pulp periods as well. Now, this is Frank Muncy, the founder of Argosy. Uh, the magazine was his brainchild. He moved to New York City to start it up, but his money backer bailed out on him uh, right at the last minute before it launched. He was fortunate to find another backer, but as a result, um, at first, he was just an editor and manager. He did not have any ownership in the magazine. Um, as editor, he uh, edited for the first four years. But after the first five months, the publisher um, went broke. Muncie had been deferring his salary, uh, and so he managed to uh, basically purchase the magazine from um, the receiver by giving up his claim for the back monies that he was owed um, uh, from the old publisher. This is a photo that ran back in 1926, <coughs> shortly after Muncie's death. So this is the first issue. It was called The Golden Argosy, dated December 9th, 1882. It was on the newsstands a week earlier, so actually if you were alive back then, and I, I suspect nobody um, here was, even Walker, um, <laughs> it would have uh, been on the newsstands December 2nd. It was a newspaper format, eight pages long, and it was really an illustrated weekly paper for boys. Um, you can't really read it from uh, that distance, I can't read it from this distance, but um, on the first page it launches with a start of a Horatio Alger serial, and Muncie's own career was pretty much like an Alger story. Um, Poor boy makes good. As David pointed out yesterday, um, well, he started bas basically nothing here. Uh, by the time um, he passed away in 1925, his estate was worth $40 million. Now here we're showing two representative issues of the um, early Golden Argosy, uh, April 16, 1887, and September 17, 1887. During this period of time, the magazine ran um, stories of all types. Uh, many adventure stories, many western stories, there were a few lost race stories as well. Uh, the page count gradually increased to uh, 16 pages as it uh, became a bit more successful. Um, and the authors uh, during this period, most of uh, whom were uh, uh, well known in the dime novel days, pretty much unknown these days, uh, included um, Horatio Alger, um, Edward Ellis, who was no relation to mine unfortunately. Um, Muncie himself wrote several stories, um, Oliver Optic, who was a very big author back in those days, William Murray Graydon, and um, also Matthew White Jr., who would end up editing Argosy for 42 years, from 1886 to 1928, which, um, uh, you know, a 42-year record of editing a pulp, I think is a record. Uh, John Campbell 
about the only guy I can think of who came close to that. Um, as David mentioned yesterday, the art uh, editor for the Muncie chain, C.H. Tate, also was with the Muncie chain for uh, several decades, so he, um, White, and Muncie overlapped for uh, many decades, uh, making it one of the most stable um, uh, teams in the pulps. With the December 1st, 1888 issue, it changed its name to the Argosy. It um, reduced its size from a newspaper size to more of a uh, large magazine format. Page count increased up to 36 pages, and they underwent a few different cover design experiments during the next few years. Um, here's the July 13th, 1889 issue. Um, it's really just a, uh, uh, oops, hang on. Sorry, this is the um, July 13th, 1889 issue, and you can't read it well, but what this talks about is um, you could um, write and order a bound volume for um, of all of Argosy for volume seven. Um, for the first several years of its run, you could, um, after the end of each uh, volume uh, that ran, you could um, order um, an entire volume in, in um, hardcovers from the publisher. Um, in um, 1891, um, Muncie launched Muncie's Weekly, which was another, um, uh, uh, his second magazine that lasted two years before it converted to a monthly. Uh-oh. Oh, I'm, I'm hitting the wrong button. That might work. All right, here's the exciting September 27th, 1890 issue. Um, for a period of time, they just ran ads on the cover. Very exciting. February 14th, 1891, they moved off the ads. Um, they would do um, uh, holiday-themed covers um, whenever holidays were appropriate. So this is a Valentine's Day cover. Um, this is the um, January 30, 1892 issue. Um, uh, and um, February 27th, 1892 issue. This is at the time that Muncie's converted Muncie's Mo Weekly into Muncie's Magazine, uh, which became extremely popular, much more popular than um, Argosy, and really um, was the driver behind uh, Muncie's uh, rise to um, uh, prominence uh, in this period. It, al it allowed him to end up doing some stuff with Argosy as well. Uh, the Muncie's magazine was aimed more at adult audience, while Argosy at this point was still uh, a juvenile um, audience in terms of its target. With the April 1894 issue, the format changed once again. This time it became a, a pulp-sized magazine, square-bound, but it was on a, a good quality paper, 108 pages with um, photo covers, including this um, fine-looking dog. Um, the last weekly issue was March 24th in 1894, and by the time of the last weekly, the circulation, um, which had reached a peak of 115,000 per issue um, a few years before, had plummeted to 9,000 um, copies per issue. So Muncie was pretty uh, desperate with Argosy at this point. It was only selling 9,000 copies uh, in issue and not doing well at all. Uh, with this change to format, within a, a month or two, the circulation jumped back up to 40,000. So it was a successful um, uh, change. This is the February 1896 issue. It's the first issue with a table of contents cover. Uh, fortunately, not a um, uh, design that lasted long. Okay, this is the October 1896 issue, which was the first all fiction uh, magazine. And it's arguable whether this particular issue, October 1896, or this issue, which looks almost exactly the same, the December 1896 issue was the first pulp. They're, they're both the right format, um, but the October issue is on a better quality paper. 
uh, the December issue is actually on a pulp paper. And within a short time, the circulation jumped up from 40,000 an issue to 80,000 an issue in this format. Um, and just as an aside, about a dozen years ago, I was at a flea market in Buffalo, and I managed to find both the October and December 1896 issues at a flea market for five bucks a piece. I was able to talk to my wife into letting me buy them. <laughs> this is the October 1898 issue, and this is the first time that Argosy absorbs another magazine, something which would happen many times in its run. Um, as it's noted on the cover beneath the Argosy, it says, and the Pearson Peterson magazine, which was a magazine that had been published since 1842. Uh, and for the next two years, this is um, how Argosy was known on the newsstands, Argosy and the Peterson magazine. Um, show a few sample covers from the period now, uh, November 1900 through September of 1905. The, um, uh, th these covers just had text generally promoting stories or touting their growing circulation. So for this one, you know, this edition is 130,000 copies, so it keeps, uh, keeps doing better. Um, this just talks about the various contents. Uh, and once again, a fact that RGC is growing by leaps and bounds, and if you're not reading it, you're an idiot. Um, in April of 1902, the, the second merger comes in. Um, Muncie had launched a, a magazine called the Junior Muncie in 1897, a uh, magazine for older children, and that uh, magazine failed after five years and merged into Argosy. And um, it, at this point, um, as I said, when it first flipped over to a pulp after a few months circulation, it increased 80,000. Now, after um, six years as a pulp, uh, five and a half years really as a pulp, Circulation is now up to 300,000 copies per issue. Uh, David showed this one last night as well. This is the October 1905 issue. Uh, it's the first Argosy pulp cover with an illustration, and um, it really, I think, changed to complete or to compete with the popular magazine, which had been launched by Street and Smith in November of 1903, and which was the first pulp that had um, painted covers. Uh, popular was an immediate success. And for the next two decades, really, um, Argosy and Popular generally, uh, with some exceptions here and there, but they generally had the highest circulation in the pulps. Uh, usually Argosy was number one during that period, Popular number two, but occasionally Popular was um, the, uh, mag the pulp with the highest circulation. I'm going to show a few representative covers from um, the next period here. So this is June of 1906, it's one of many medieval covers, and you know, the pulps weren't always politically correct. so. Up top here, no place for a woman. Um, April 1907 was one of many ship covers. Um, again, for years, Argosy would use ship designs for mastheads or for logos for various things, um, hearkening back to Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, the letter column in Argosy, once they ran one, was initially called the log book. Uh, they eventually changed it, however, to the Argo Notes. This is the December 1907 issue, marking a uh, return to the all-text cover for at least one issue. Uh, but it touts the 25th anniversary, and that circulation has now reached um, a half a million copies per issue. Um, inside, it ran a um, history of the magazine to that point that was written by Muncie. Um, and um, the second best pulp convention in the country, Windy City, uh, ran this uh, article uh, in our program book this year. Uh, I just threw this one there because I like it. January 1908. January 1909. At this period, they um, were primarily running historical fiction, um, mysteries, general adventure, um, 
uh, westerns, uh, sprinkling of SF, not too much science fiction yet at this point. February 1910, another ship cover, and I just love the lettering on this. I just think it's uh, very elegant and interesting. They, they, they did a lot of interesting design things at this point uh, in its uh, run. March 1910, um, similarly, uh, you know, covers in this period just had this um, sort of elegant feel to them. Um, uh, certainly much different than what you would see um, 20, 30 years later. Here you've got a medieval knight. You know, 20 or 30 years later, you'd be locked in combat. Somebody would have an ax in their hands and uh, somebody would be about to die. In July 1910, they switched over to a new cover design. Um, Actually, it began in May 1910. This is the um, uh, July 1910 issue, however. And for the next year and a half, every cover image um, was um, framed by either a square or a circle. Um, it alternated months depending on uh, which it was, a square or a circle. And this is actually the first science fiction cover that ever ran on Argosy. Uh, it didn't run very many science fiction covers compared to uh, the, its companion titles, Alstering and Cavalier. Um, but it did run some science fiction um, uh, covers. The uh, editor of Cavalier and All Story, uh, Robert Davis, uh, was really the first important editor as far as the science fiction field ran, um, as those two magazines actually ran quite a bit of science fiction. Um, the science fiction story here, Around the World in 24 Hours, is um, written by Stephen Angus Cox. Obviously, I don't need to tell anybody here who he is. He's well known to this day as a legend. August 1911, the uh, first baseball cover on Argosy. So science fiction beat out baseball, at least here. December 1912 was their first full color cover. Um, this one's by artist Rolf Bull. Uh, so Mr. Bull is apparently an answer to a pulp trivia question coming up. Um, this also has part three of Castaways of the Year 2000 by William Wallace Cook. Uh, Cook was a very popular author uh, in the pulps of this period um, for the Muncie chain, uh, primarily, although he did stuff for um, Street and Smith and others. Um, he wrote in all genres, but um, he, to the extent he's remembered today, it's remembered for his science fiction stories. Uh, and at this point in time, in 1912, the uh, average monthly circulation was uh, being maintained at around 500,000 copies uh, per issue. This is the July 1914 issue. Um, at this point, they're really transitioning from the um, earlier um, look and um, earlier uh, fiction they were running. They're starting to run some authors that um, people really do still remember. Um, so this is the first cover for um, one of H. Bedford Jones' uh, most popular series characters, uh, John Solomon, the uh, amiable Cockney who is an undercover British government operative. And it's really a, a toss-up, I think, as to whether um, Bedford Jones or uh, Max Brand was the most prolific uh, writer for the Pulps. Uh, I suspect Ed Hulse could tell us, but uh, both those guys just uh, turned out tremendous amounts of material. June 1915, another John Solomon cover. This is uh, September 1914, um, Zane Grain on the cover. And he was, at the time, perhaps the most popular Western author of the early 20th, of the early 20th century and his work really idealized the American frontier. This uh, particular um, issue appeared uh, about two years after his Riders of the Purple Sage, which really um, uh, uh, launched his fame. July 1915, there's um, two stories uh, uh, mentioned here. The first, if I can find the pointer. There we go. 
um, Froth of Dreams by James Francis Dwyer. Dwyer was a popular writer of adventure stories for a lot of the different pulps. He was an Australian who'd spent uh, some time in jail. He was convicted of forgery in 1899, sentenced to seven years. He served three of them, and um, he began writing um, when he got out of uh, jail and moved to the U.S. Um, it also features a story by Fred Jackson. Um, and uh, Jackson was a prolific writer for the Muncie Pulps, um, and H.P. Lovecraft hated his stories. Um, they were very sentimental. Um, Lovecraft uh, thought they were a bit erotic, which um, if you read them today, there's really nothing erotic about them, but I guess for 1915, maybe they were. Um, and Lovecraft criticized them in several um, letters to Argosy, including um, one where um, he wrote a, uh, a long verse uh, uh, ripping on Jackson. And um, Jackson's supporters chimed in in the letters column in defense of Jackson. It created a bit of a flame war. Today, uh, you know, if it was on Facebook or something, it'd be uh, people befriending each other left and right, but um, uh, eventually it settled down. Um, Jackson was, however, a very popular author for the Muncie chain, notwithstanding uh, Lovecraft's sentiments. And um, he was paid um, uh, uh, two years before this for the story, The First Law, which was an April 13 issue, $1,250, which um, uh, was for a novel, and today would be about $30,000. So he was doing all right back in the day. Here's the September 1916 issue, proving that William Wallace Cook also wrote non-science fiction. This is the June 1917 cover. It's a, uh, a patriotic cover, obviously, and America had just entered the war in April of 1917. This issue would have been in the newsstands in May of 17, so I suspect the art editor quick um, told his artist to whip up a, a, a patriotic cover um, in connection with uh, America entering the war. Um, as an aside, um, Argosy managed to generally avoid the fate of All Story and Blue Book and Adventure and some others in the mid-teens uh, on its covers. Those pulps often published portraits of pretty women on the cover, uh, which looked nice enough but really had nothing to do with the contents and really weren't terribly appropriate for an uh, adventure fiction magazine. Um, at this time, uh, artists uh, doing covers for Argosy were getting uh, about $125 per cover which uh, by 1920 had increased to um, uh, $140 a cover. So in today's money, it's about $2,000 uh, a, a cover for an artist. Um, the circulation at this point had dropped, and popular actually uh, was in, in 1917, the uh, more popular pulp. Um, circulation now is about 220,000 a copy. This is um, October 6th. 1917. It's the first weekly issue, and that's what the lovely announcement is discussing, that they're going back to weekly. Uh, the last monthly issue is also dated October 1917, so if you're collecting, there's actually five October issues. The first one has no um, date beyond October, however. Um, November 10, 1917 uh, features a story by um, uh, Frederick Faust, uh, writing as Max Brand, and uh, certainly he's best known for his westerns, but he wrote a lot of other genres as well, including a lot of historical stuff for um, the, the Muncie Pulps, including this one. February 2, 1918, uh, Victor Rousseau, another popular uh, and prolific author for the Muncie Chains. He wrote many genres. I'm not sure what Fruit of the Lo Lamp is. I know what Fruit of the Loom is, but um, Fruit of the Lamp, uh, I just don't know. May 4th, 1918, um, Johnson McCulley, uh, who's best known for creating Zorro, which he created the next year in um, 1919 in All Story, 
uh, is here with another tale of Central America, but it's set long before the, uh, the Zorro stories. June 15th, 1919, uh, this is a story, uh, a cover for a story by another popular author at the time, Charles Stilson. He's perhaps best known for Polaris of the Snow stories, which appeared in All Story and were um, uh, competitors um, of um, uh, Tarzan. He also wrote a lot of historical romances uh, like this one. October 5th, 1918, the um, smaller um, story mentioned up in the upper um, left uh, is Peter the Brazen by George Wartz. It's the first story of Peter the Brazen, who was um, probably Wartz's most popular series character about uh, American Peter Moore, a uh, radio operator and engineer in China who had many fantastic adventures over there. The um, true cover story, though, is the one in the bottom right um, by Captain A.E. Dingle, who was a seafarer in real life, spent 22 years at sea, not consecutively. Um, was shipwrecked many times, and he wrote um, sea stories for many pulps. Um, right about this time, late teens, his wife and daughter were in England. He was living in the U.S., and he began a relationship with a, with a woman. Uh, one day they were out sailing in the Atlantic alone, and he says when he came up on deck, uh, she was gone, she must have fallen overboard, never found her, um, and um, apparently he was believed he was never charged with anything. Uh, December 14th, 1918, Robert Ames Bennett's um, Sultana of Marib, um, like many stories that appeared in Argosy or, or novels, this was um, uh, published in book form. Um, it's a lost race. Uh, Bennett wrote uh, several of those as well as uh, westerns. December 28th, 1918, Ahmed Abdullah appears uh, with uh, um, this tale, The Web. He was uh, uh, like many of the folks I've discussed, a prolific contributor to the Muncie magazines. Um, Abdullah claimed descent from the Russian royal family, immigrated to the U.S. in 1910. Um, the uh, chances he really was a Russian royal uh, family member are about slim and none, and I think slim just rode out of town. Um, he uh, also became a, success, a successful screenwriter later uh, in, in uh, the day, and um, several of his stories have fantastic elements, and many are set in the Middle East. Okay, so one of Muncie's other titles, Railroad Man's Magazine, began back in 1906. Uh, it's really the first specialized pulp. Um, here's two sample covers from it from the teens. This one's October 1918. This one's December 28th of 1918. And um, as you can see, several of the covers, and in fact, the stories that ran in there were not related to railroads at all. There's a, there's a great Viking story that ran about this time in a Railroad Man's Magazine for some bizarre reason. But the reason I mention it and show it is because it, with the January 25th, 1919 issue, it merges into Argosy, which now becomes Argosy and Railroad Man's Magazine. Um, the combined title runs until May 24th of 1919, so about five months under this title, and then they drop the and Railroad Man's Magazine. July 26th, 1919, Isle of Drums by J. Allen Dunn. Dunn was another prolific writer, particularly um, adventure stories, westerns, wrote for basically all the pulps. He had spent time by this time in both Hawaii and the West. Um, he was a friend of Jack London. He was apparently more than a friend of Jack London's wife. Uh, um, he left San Francisco early in the teens in a bit of a cloud when it was discovered that um, he was, um, uh, a lot of his friends were fairly wealthy and he would go to their parties and steal jewelry from them when nobody was paying attention. Um, 
uh, he, he, they set him up when they realized it was probably him. He, he got busted in the act, but um, the, his friends didn't want to cause a scandal, so uh, no, no charges were pressed so long as he agreed to move back out east. Uh, October 11th, 1919, uh, David showed this cover yesterday. I showed it, I think, for the same reason, just because I think it's very cool. Uh, it's by Garrett Smith, um, uh, Between Worlds. Um, Smith wrote a lot of early um, SF stories from the Muncie Chang. March 13th, 1920, uh, a tale by Charles Eldon Sulster, who um, another popular Western pulp writer of the time. April 17th of 1920, naked men of Naga, not pictured on the cover. Uh, or if they are, the shield is covering a lot. Um, this one's by Gordon McRae, who um, was a popular writer of adventure tales, and he'd spent a lot of time uh, in the Far East before this, uh, uh, trapping live animals, uh, doing a lot of stuff uh, in the Far East, was involved in um, some early attempts at filming um, uh, in the Far East. And uh, he wrote, in addition to his pulps, uh, he wrote some great nonfiction travel books, particularly in the 1920s, uh, about South um, America. And for Adventure Magazine in the 1920s, he um, explored Abyssinia, looking for the Ark of the Covenant. And um, he was later made a Knight of the, Emperor, of the Empire by the Ethiopian Emperor. He was born in Indiana, and some think he was an inspiration for Indiana Jones. Certainly they both were looking for the Ark of the Covenant, but to all accounts, McRae did not find it. The June 12th, 1920 issue, um, featuring a cover story by Harold Lamb, Caravan of the Dead. Um, uh, Lamb, uh, very well known uh, still today as a writer of historical adventure fiction. Um, he did do work for Argosy, obviously, like this piece, but uh, primarily his pulp output uh, is much more um, associated with, uh, with adventure, um, uh, particularly his series about Clint the, Clint the Cossack, but uh, wrote several uh, other series as well. And eventually he graduated to um, uh, writing for the Slicks and uh, a number of best-selling best -selling books. Here is a uh, check that Lamb received from Muncie uh, for the Lake of Long Dreams from All Story in um, 1918 um, for $100. Uh, it was a relatively short story. Um, in the teens and the 20s, the top uh, word rates were actually much higher than um, they were in the um, uh, 30s. So for this story, he got 100 bucks, which would be about $1,700 today. This June 19th, 1920 issue um, features uh, Frances Stevens Serapion. Um, she didn't really might write that much, but she's very well regarded even today for her fantasy stories. She was really the first um, major female writer of science fiction and fantasy in the US. Her real name was Gertrude Bennett, but I guess she thought that uh, Frances Stevens sounded much better, and I think I probably agree with that. Um, the last issue with this cover design, they're about to, <coughs> excuse me, they're about to change designs, um, is uh, next month. The July 17th, 1920 issue is the last time that Argosy looks like this. Um, with the July 24th issue, it's going to merge with All Story Weekly. <coughs> and before discussing that, I'm going to take a quick brief look at um, All Story and the, the pulps that merged into it. Uh, take notes on this, there will be a test. I know it's quick, but um, you, you all can see fine. I can see fine, you can see fine. So this is the ocean, um, August of 1907. It was the second specialized pulp uh, after Railroad Stories. Uh, it only ran for 11 issues though, from 1907 to 1908. Retitled The Live Wire with February 1908 issue. 
And there's the live wire, which is a magazine that is going some. It's a general fiction magazine, <coughs> had um, actually color interior illustrations, which was highly unusual. And it only ran for eight issues, um, so I guess it uh, was going some and then it went. Um, it ran for eight issues before it merged into the scrapbook in October of 1908. <coughs> so here's the scrapbook, December of 1907, second section. And when you say, what the hell's the second section? Um, they had a bizarre idea with the scrapbook. Um, starting in 1906, they published it, or rather, the magazine itself started in 1906, but beginning in July of 1907, they published the scrapbook in two sections. So there were two separate magazines, each the size of a regular pulp, basically. And the first section was nonfiction, the second section was fiction. Um, but it was a horrible idea. On the newsstands, you really couldn't keep the two sections together easily. Um, so um, I think news dealers hated it. And the two-section idea um, lasted until September of 1908, so just over a year, when the second section they finally gave up on and they just merged it er, into um, the Cavalier. So here's um, Cavalier, uh, the June um, 1909 issue. Um, the Cavalier was launched in October of 1908, um, which took over for the, for the fiction section of the scrapbook. It became a weekly um, in, um, January 6th of 1912, when the rest of the scrapbook merged into it. So here you can see it's the Cavalier with also the scrapbook. Um, and then the Cavalier itself merged into the All Story with the May 9th, 1914 issue. So now finally we get to All Story Weekly. This is the February 15th, 1919 um, issue. Fantastic cover, in my opinion, for um, Merritt's Conquest of the Moon Pool. All Story had begun back in 1905. Um, and under editor Bob Davis had featured a lot more planetary romance and fantasy than Argosy. Um, many of the regular authors uh, wrote science fiction and fantasy, such as uh, Merritt here and uh, more particularly Edgar Rice Burroughs. The last issue of it was July 17, 1920, um, and with the merger of several authors who had appeared to that time only in either All Story or Cavalier, um, now finally started appearing in Argosy as well. So this is the August 7th, 1920 issue. Magazine is now retitled Argosy All Story Weekly. Uh, for some bizarre reason I've never understood to this day, um, on the cover you can see the hyphen between all and story. On the spine the hyphen is between Argosy and all. <laughs> so God only knows what they were thinking. Um, this is another Merritt story, so his first appearance in Argosy um, is for the metal um, uh, monster. Uh, his original title was The Metal Emperor. Um, and um, Merritt was purportedly the highest paid author um, in the um, uh, monthly chain. For this particular story, he received $1,000, uh, or about $12,500 today. And the original for this cover still exists. Um, there it is. It's by P.J. Monahan, although he did it under the name Glenn White for some reason. He did this a few times, and you, can, you can't see from, it's too small here, but there's Glenn White's signature, and if you look carefully at the original, you can see where Monahan's been painted over um, the Monahan signature. Um, <coughs> at this time, Argosy was paying um, uh, starting word rates of a, uh, a cent a word. Um, but um, authors like H. Bedford Jones, some of the bigger names, were getting five or six cents a word, uh, which was not bad money back in those days. Uh, so, I mean, for a 10,000 word novelette, um, even at a cent a word, it's uh, 100 bucks or basically $1,250 today, whereas Bedford Jones making six cents a word is pulling in um, uh, about $7,500 a story in today's dollars. 
February 21st, 1921 issue, um, Tarzan the Terrible. It's the first appearance of um, Burroughs and Argosy. Uh, this had actually been accepted by uh, Bob Davis um, before he left uh, Muncie after the um, merger um, of All Story and Argosy made Davis more or less uh, obsolete. Um, and uh, Burroughs received $3,000 for this um, story, um, uh, which uh, translates to about 36,500 today. May 14, 1921, The Blind Spot by Austin Hall, Homer Ian Flint. Like Merritt and Burroughs, they were regular writers of science fiction from um, all story. Um, but uh, lest you think that um, uh, Muncie uh, and the Muncie editors um, had science fiction down, they did make some mistakes. Uh, right around this time, they rejected E.E. Uh, e. Doc Smith's Skylark of Space. Um, they wrote to him that it was too far out. November 19th, 1921. Um, like this one here, a lot of um, Argosy stories were made into movies or written from movie scripts. And um, again, tough to see, but down here it talks about this is a George D. Baker um, uh, presentation coming at the movie starring some guy, Gareth Hughes, who frankly I've never heard of, but maybe he was big back in the day. So you, you, they, they often cross-promoted things like this uh, in an effort, I think, both to increase circulation and I suspect that uh, the movie studios were probably involved to some degree as well. December 3, 1921, uh, um, The Wreck. Uh, auto stories were, were relatively popular at this time. Still, the autos uh, were still relatively new um, and uh, most of them had some sort of humorous element with uh, uh, cars crashing because that's always fun. December 10, 1921, we'd seen a Max Brand uh, non-Western. Here he is doing what he does best, uh, a Western of Black Jack. February 18, 1922, um, Chessmen of Mars by Burroughs was the first um, John Carter story um, in Argosy. All the earlier ones had appeared in All Story. Um, he actually got a little more for this um, than he did for Tarzan the Terrible. This one he was paid 3500 for, which in 19... 22 would equate to about $48,000 today. Um, Bob Davis, after leaving All Story, became an agent, and um, uh, Burroughs had engaged him for this story. He, he, he told Davis to offer it around to people for $10,000. Um, surprisingly, nobody took it. Uh, Popular was one of the uh, other magazines that uh, turned it down at uh, the $10,000 price, but um, $3,500 or $48,000 today is still not chump change for this story. So the May 6, 1922 issue, Johnson McCauley's um, second Zorro story, The Further Adventures of Zorro, although um, <coughs> inside it's spelled correctly. On the cover, Zorro is Z-O-R-O. -O. So um, I suspect that that intern lasted about one issue. Um, it does mention the upcoming movie with Douglas Fairbanks in the lead. And at this point, um, during 1922, circulation had bounced back. Uh, they were back up to 470,000 um, copies per issue sold. Uh, undoubtedly, a lot of that to do with the fact that uh, with the merger of All Story and a lot of um, fan favorites are now making appearances in All Story, in, rather in, in Argosy as well, so boosting circulation. All right, this one I had to include. This is the September 15, 1923 issue, and I've got no freaking clue who thought this was a good idea. So this is for the story Cheddar Cheese, which I know you've all read. And the tagline here is, something that goes with the pie. So. <laughs> You know, this woman's reading the newspaper, she's a little startled. The guy looks really startled, his hand looks deformed. 
but uh, I don't know, maybe he's only tried Swiss cheese before, now cheddar cheese is coming to him, I, I just don't know. But I've not read it, but uh, Diggs Latouche, your task is to read this story and report back next year. Um, this is an ad um, for the December 15, 1923 issue, um, um, advertising that Clarence Mulford's Hopalong Cassidy is coming to um, uh, that issue of Argosy All Story. Cassidy obviously is a famous character for decades, appeared in pulps, books, movies, every other form of media known to man, uh, probably be in live streaming if it was done today. Um, and this is a window card that would have been given uh, to newsstands back in the day to put up uh, advertising the issue so people would know it was out uh, with a new hop along issue. And um, uh, most of the pulp chains did uh, advertising ephemera like this. Unfortunately, most of it hasn't survived. It was intended to be thrown away right away. Generally, it's on a thin cardboard, sometimes even on a cloth, and um, they just didn't make it. But um, this one survived in remarkably good shape all this time. Another type of advertising piece that publishers would often give to dealers were cloth banners. This particular one um, uh, is uh, touting Tarzan and the Ant-Man, which began in February 2 of 1924. And the banners are quite large, particularly compared to the um, uh, cardboard signs. This is probably about um, two feet by three feet. Um, and it's on a very, very thin cloth. Um, again, amazing these things survive, but um, uh, uh, they would have been blanketing your newsstands if you were hovering around them in 1924. And here's one more of them. This one's uh, for a little bit later that year, April 26, 1924, and it actually shows the, um, the issue itself. Uh, and you can read uh, the world's greatest all-fiction weekly at a popular price of 10 cents. This is the August 9, 1924 issue. Um, J.U. Geisy and Junius Smith uh, present here with a um, story about their character, Semi-Duel, um, another popular character which moved over to Argosy, which had first appeared in the Cavalier. Um, Semi-Duel was a Persian occult investigator, so he was a pretty cool dude. Um, it notes here on the cover that um, Semi-Duel solves the Neptune equation. I am not sure if he also solved the three-body equation or not, but we can read it and find out later. This <coughs> is a poster for the all-fiction field which was started in 1918 by four pulp publishers, Doubleday, Muncie, Ridgeway, and Street and & Smith to increase ad revenue. And the deal was that you would buy um, ad space in all uh, pulps of all of those four chains um, uh, at the same time uh, through a um, central um, uh, uh, arrangement. So um, uh, if you, uh, instead, of selling, instead of having to deal with four different magazines, four different publishers, you just had one contact to deal with and you would get your um, Add in all of the uh, pulps that they had, those publishers published. When it was launched, um, the publishers did a lot of um, promo in various magazines, and in, in some of that, it is stated that um, seven and a half million dollars is spent um, each year uh, by 1.8 million customers buying the magazines of those um, uh, four publishers on 38,000 newsstands across the uh, country. Um, the combined ad rate, if you wanted to buy a full-page ad back then, was um, 1300 bucks, which would be about $22,500 to buy a full-page ad. And this particular poster was part of a um, packet given to prospective advertisers in 1925. And you see down at the bottom, it says, Lutheran advertising is appearing in these 16 magazines, and 13 million people are um, theoretically reading them. On the back of the poster, um, it, um, uh, it has some quotes from Listerine talking about what a great thing it is that they've been advertising with the all-fiction field and how everybody should be doing it. 
February 6th of uh, 1926, um, story The Seal of Satan. Um, this was by author question mark. Um, an unidentified author, um, presumably just to sort of drum up um, interest or mystery, and um, they liked the idea so much that a few months later they did another one by this guy. Um, it ultimately was revealed the author was Fred McIsaac, who was a regular Argosy um, author. I have no idea if it uh, worked well or not, but they did stop it after two issues, so um, my suspicion is it did not do quite what they wanted it to do. This is actually the next issue, February 13th of 1926, and the um, uh, block text at the top uh, says the story of Frank A. Muncy begins in this issue. He had passed away two months earlier on December 22nd of 1925, and so with this issue, um, Argosy begins running a, a long article um, uh, about him um, through several issues. The company was taken over by um, uh, William Dewart, um, and um, as um, uh, David mentioned yesterday, uh, Muncie's will stated that the magazines uh, in the Muncie chain, which included not just Argosy, but many newspapers and other magazines, were not to be sold for seven years to avoid a um, fire sale and hopefully maximize the price when they were sold. So with the April 17, 1926 issue, cover changed to this format. This is the um, February 12, 1927 issue. So now Muncie has passed away a, a year later, um, or um, rather four months after he passes away. The cover design they've ran for the previous six years now changes to this. So I suspect that um, this may have been something that White had wanted to maybe do for a bit, but Muncie had been resisting. Uh, Muncie now doesn't resist. He's dead. Um, this is a uh, really the first uh, war cover they've run in a long time. Um, they were really pretty rare before this, but now they've become fairly common. Um, I think in part because war pulps um, were starting to come out at this time. Uh, war pulps were very popular and Argosy wanted to compete with them as well. And the whole feel of the cover starts to change at this time as well. Um, they become much less sedate. They start moving towards more action um, as we keep moving to the 30s and that trend continues. And, and the fiction um, uh, uh, starts moving that way a bit uh, too. Um, particularly um, after um, uh, June 9th of 1928, um, which is um, when White's 42-year run as um, editor ends. So Muncie dies in 26, um, the editor for 42 years, White uh, resigns in uh, 28. So a two-year period, a lot of upheaval in the magazine. Um, and White was replaced by Archibald Bittner, who formerly had been with um, Short Stories and Frontier. Uh, before that, he'd been an editor with Adventure. Um, in the 1930s, um, after he um, left Argosy, he um, wrote The Weird Menace as Wayne Rogers, and he actually wrote several Spider and Operator 5 novels. But um, as um, editor of Argosy, um, he brought a lot of um, adventures, off adventures authors over to Argosy, um, uh, folks he had worked with back when he was editing uh, under Hoffman at Adventure, uh, especially uh, Talbot Mundy. This is the November 11th, 1928 issue, and uh, the story, He Rules Who Can, by Arthur Krilkers Brodeur. Brodeur, it's his first appearance in Argosy, but he was a regular with Adventure, again, where Bittner um, uh, knew him from. And uh, undoubtedly, Bittner brought him over. Um, uh, Brodeur wrote a lot of historical adventure for Adventure. Um, he was a professor at University of California at Berkeley, and um, one of the few academics, I guess, writing for the pulps at the time. December 8th, 1928, W. Wirt with uh, Warlord of Many Swordsmen. Uh, Wirt wrote a lot of stories set in China against the backdrop of warlords. Um, uh, his most famous series uh, featured American Jimmy Cordy and his band. Um, lots of uh, parallels with, um, 
that uh, group with uh, Doc Savage's crew. I actually wrote an article about it probably about 20 years ago at this point for Pulp Fault if you can find the damn thing. Um, but um, the original cover for this one by Paul Starr still exists. And there it is. February 16, 1929, the Cardinal's cursed by uh, J. A. Allen Dunn, uh, another pirate tale. He, he, Dunn was another um, author who had been absent from Argosy for many, many years, and he became a regular um, back when uh, he became a regular when Bittner um, assumed things. So Bittner was obviously uh, looking through his um, index cards, uh, calling up all his old author buddies from Adventure and Short Stories and Frontier, and saying, "Come over to Argosy." As I said, the most successful or the largest author he brought over was uh, Talbot Mundy. This is uh, April 27, 1929, um, for um, a, a monkey cover story by Allah, who made tigers. May 11, 1929, uh, a cover story by, uh, featuring a story by Ralph Milne Farley, uh, one of his um, Radio Man series, which uh, was a popular series, uh, ran for um, uh, many years in the magazine. And another author on the cover, um, uh, William Miriam Rouse had been absent from Argosy for six years, um, uh, and Bittner brings him back as well. And I don't know if you really see this um, text here. Says, um, oops. Text here says that the uh, magazine is the property of the Fox Studio Library. The movie studios mined the pulps for stories for decades, and uh, all the major studios would um, get the, the leading pulps in and keep them in their library, and people would uh, mine them for um, story ideas. So at one point, this particular issue was owned by the Fox Studio Library. May 18, 1929, an underworld cover. Um, again, that, like with the war stories, uh, uh, the war pulps, uh, the um, underworld uh, was starting to gain uh, traction uh, as, a as a pulp genre around this time becoming popular. And so Argosy also began running some more stories and covers featuring the other underworld. Uh, Frank Packard, the author of it, uh, was another author who had been absent for Ar from Argosy for five years. Um, Bittner brought him back. And Packard still sort of remembered, I guess, today, mostly for his Jimmy Dale series. June 22nd, 1929, Ray Cummings, Shadow Girl, um, one of the many science fiction stories that he had appearing in Argosy. Uh, shortly after this, a couple months later, September 28th of 29, is the last issue with All Story on the cover. As you've been noticing, the words All Story Weekly have been, been getting smaller and smaller over the last um, year or two. And um, three months from now, it's going to um, uh, disappear entirely. And in a really bizarre, um, uh, move. I'm not quite sure why they did things this way, but it was, um, I guess, a good idea to somebody. Um, the Muncie's, which was a pulp at this time, uh, merged into Argosy All Story Weekly in October of 29, and then Muncie's and All Story Weekly spun out as All Story combined with Muncie, um, and that became a love pulp uh, in October 5 of 1929, which just leaves Argosy as lonely Argosy. This is the December 21st, 1929 issue. Uh, for Otis Adelbert Klein's Maza of the Moon on the cover. Klein was really considered to be Burroughs' uh, biggest competitor in the late 20s, early 30s. He wrote a lot of stories set on Venus, on Mars. He had a serious character, Jan of the Jungle, not to be confused with Tarzan of the Jungle, unless you really want to. Um, and the original cover by, this, uh, by Robert Graff of this still exists. And there it is. And um, the sad news is I do not own it. Um, <laughs> I did make a very good trade offer on it recently, and uh, the owner foolishly rejected it, so may he burn. <laughs> this is the uh, January 25th, 1930 issue. 
Uh, Bedford Jones returns with John Solomon. Um, Argus had been trying to get Jones to return with uh, return uh, with the Solomon story for a while, and uh, Bittner was successful in getting him to do it. Um, Bittner also managed to bring back a number of other serious characters at this time. Um, Peter the Brazen, who hadn't appeared since the late teens, uh, returns two issues later. Zorro, who had been absent for seven or eight years, returns next year. Semi-Duel had just returned uh, the year earlier. Um, and in addition to um, uh, bringing back a lot of the old uh, popular series characters, um, as well as bringing over uh, a lot of his old writers from adventure and short stories in Frontier, um, Bittner was also looking for new blood. He was advertising in writers' magazines at the time that um, Argosy was a, a good market for new writers. Um, at this point, word rates are starting at a cent, one and a half cents a word and up. Uh, but unlike um, the situation a decade earlier, there's really not much up. Um, unless you were one of the really top guys, you pretty much were a, a cent and a half a word. But at that rate, you know, 10,000 words novelette, nets you 150 bucks, which today would be about $2,000. May 3rd, 1930. It's features on the cover of a Foreign Legion story by Theodore Roscoe, uh, The Death Watch. Um, Roscoe wrote a lot of Legion stories for Argosy, particularly um, the series character uh, Thibaut Corday, which are uh, just great stuff. I think Altus has reprinted all the Cordy stories in a number of volumes. Um, and uh, during the 30s, Argosy ran a lot of Foreign Legion stories uh, by um, a, a number of regular writers of them. Um, George Serdez, one of them, Robert Carr's another, and um, uh, also J.D. Newsom. And uh, pulp author um, Hugh Cave, um, thought that Newsom's uh, Legion stories were uh, among the best stories uh, in the pulps. This is the July um, 5th, 1930 issue. Uh, features a story on the cover by um, Malcolm Wheeler, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, who um, uh, not only was a pulp author, he was a pioneer in the American comic books uh, uh, industry. His national allied publications eventually became DC Comics. Unfortunately for him, it was after he lost control of it to his printer, Harry Donenfeld. So while Superman made Donenfeld a ton of money, uh, Nicholson, uh, not so much. October 11th, 1930. This is another of George Wart's series characters, um, lawyer Gillian Hazeltine. And I got to tell you, you know, here you got Hazeltine in front of this um, idol in, I don't know, the South Seas or uh, uh, somewhere uh, interesting. Um, and uh, it's pretty much a typical exciting life for a lawyer. Um, people ask me a lot, you know, what life is lawyers like, and I, I, I show them this cover and say, you know, well, this is pretty much what I do every day. <laughs> February 28th, 1931, this features a story, Bonds of the Northland by Robert Pinkerton. Uh, Pinkerton wrote both by himself as well as um, uh, with his uh, wife, Catherine. Um, and they really knew what they were talking about when they wrote about the Northwest, which was the general setting for their stories. Um, back in the teens, uh, they had built a cabin up in northern Canada uh, where they lived for many years, and it was accessible um, only by boat in the summer or by dog sled in the winter. May 16th of 31, the Pirate of Wall Street. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, given that the stock market had crashed just a few years earlier, um, Argosy occasionally ran um, crime stories centered around financial markets. Uh, the original painting by Starr uh, of this also um, still exists. And at this time, uh, Paul Starr was getting uh, $250 per cover painting, which equates about $3,600 today. So that's what he was paid for this. 
December 16th of 31, at the top, um, uh, touting W.C. Tuttle's Wild Oats. Tuttle wrote a lot of humorous westerns for um, uh, a lot of the pulps. Uh, for Argosy, he had a series character, Sheriff Henry Harrison Conroy. Um, the issue also features a Mountie story, which is a regular type of um, uh, story that ran in Argosy a lot. Uh, also features a story by Ralph Perry at the bottom. Uh, Perry wrote a lot of stories about the South Seas, uh, especially at a series character fellow, Bill Williams, which I've always liked quite a bit. And, uh, Matt, if you're out there listening, I've always thought those should be reprinted. Um, two months before this issue uh, ran, Bittner was replaced as editor. Uh, so his run was relatively short. Um, it was replaced by Don Moore, and uh, Moore's biggest claim to fame probably is between 1934 and 54, he was the idea man behind Flash Gordon and Jungle Jim. This is the September 17th, 1932 issue, featuring Pirates of Venus, the first of the Venus stories. Um, Burroughs had worked out a deal with um, Muncie to come back to the, the pages of Argosy. Um, and so he pre-sold a um, great deal for him before he even wrote them, three novels, two more, uh, to get him to come back. Um, this one was actually written first, but was published second. Uh, Tarzan's story, which was written second, was published first because um, when the deal got signed, Moore immediately touted that Tarzan was going to be returning, and so they wanted the first story to appear to be a um, Tarzan. Um, Grafe did the cover for this, got 175 bucks, and I've got five minutes, so I've got to fly. October 15, 32, Earl Stanley Garner, Chinatown Mystery. Garner did a lot of stuff uh, for them during the years. April 31, 33, Haycox, Ernst Haycox, popular Western author. July 22 of 33, T.S. Stribling's Railroad. This um, Stribling wrote a lot for the pulps, but he also won the Pulitzer in 33, so not all uh, pulp writers um, were confined to the pulps. Uh, July 29 of 33, one of Carl Detzer's um, several fireman stories that he wrote for both the Pulps as well as Saturday Evening Post. August 5th of 33, Hilbert Footner wrote a number of stories uh, concerning Madame Rizika Story, uh, a female detective, uh, unusual back in the day. October 7th, 33, Albert Pace and Terhoon, a number of dog stories starting with <coughs> Lad, a dog, back in uh, many years earlier. And by now, um, uh, Don Moore's been replaced as editor by Albert Gibney. He'd been with uh, Muncie since he started as an ad rep in the teens. Eventually, Gibney becomes um, uh, co-publisher and managing editor of all the uh, Muncie pulps. Doesn't last long as the actual editor. Uh, he's replaced in 1934 by Frederick Clayton, who had been with short stories. May 26 of 34, George Ward's third major series character, Singapore Sammy, the original. <coughs> March 9th of 35, um, George Bruce, one of the more famous aviation pulp writers, also wrote for Argosy as well as um, uh, basically all the aviation pulps. Uh, in this period, uh, we've not talked much about interior art, but interior artists at this time were getting about $13 a piece for interior LOs, so about 230 bucks if you did an interior illustration. Uh, another um, uh, Max Brand story, although this time writing is George Chalice, um, his Firebrand series from April of 35. June 1535, F.V.W. Mason, who just wrote a ton of historical stories for uh, Argosy. This one set back to the time of Alexander the Great. October 3 of um, 36, um, Hubbard is mentioned, L. Ron Hubbard, as Mr. Luck at the top uh, right. Um, he wrote several stories for Argosy. Uh, this issue also has a story inside by Robert E. Howard. Earlier in the year, um, the editor had changed once again. Um, you know, here they went 42 years with one editor and like they've gone through five in uh, about six years. 
Uh, Jack Byrne has now taken over. He'd been at Fiction House for a lot of years before that. At Fiction House, um, Robert E. Howard sold him a lot of stuff, and when Byrne um, took over at Argosy, um, he, he got Howard back into the pages of Argosy with, uh, with several stories. December 5th, 36, Lester Dent, uh, one of his three appearances uh, with Hades, uh, obviously Dent most well-known for Doc Savage. Uh, May 1 of 37, one of Judson Phillips' uh, several sports stories. Uh, he wrote sports stories of all types um, for the magazine, and Byrne is now gone as editor, replaced by Chandler Whipple. August 28th of 37, this is one of several future war covers that Argosy ran in the late 30s, which featured America either threatened or conquered. And I think I saw on the TV last week that uh, some of these covers were featured during the RNC. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the, the red band at the top of the cover is now gone, and Argosy at this point is really trying, is experimenting. They've been losing circulation. They're trying different things out to try and regain circulation. Uh, Bolarski, who's the uh, artist on this, is getting $125 to $150 a cover, which is about half what Paul Starr was getting six years earlier. Um, December 18th of 37, both uh, Cornell Warwick and um, Hubbard on the cover, uh, Warwick mostly known for detectives, obviously. January 29th of 38, Luke Short uh, gets the cover, obviously a very popular Western um, writer. Um, at this time, Argosy cuts their rates to a, a, a one and a quarter cent a word. Um, so again, uh, trying to uh, save a little money. Um, and uh, their up now is really very, very little up. September 17th, 38, uh, one of the um, Horatio Hornblower stories, which were very popular. And at this time, Argosy ran a poll asking uh, their writers to write in for what the most popular story had ever been to appear in a Muncie pulp. Um, number two was Tarzan of the Apes. Uh, number one was Amerit's um, Ship of Ishtar, which um, he had received 175 bucks for back in 1919. And they took the occasion of um, that being voted the most popular story to reprint it. Um, and they then realized if we reprint things, we can save money. So from that point on, they started reprinting uh, stories, saving some costs. September 24, 38, uh, another Muncie Pulp All-American Fiction merges into Argosy. December 10th of 38, um, this is the logo Argosy would use for a short time where they talked about All-American Fiction merging in. You can see there's a note there that the 39 steps is being reprinted. This particular cover was later reprinted on the first issue of the Muncie Pulp Foreign Legion Adventures. Um, trying to save some money. And um, this particular cover, as well as five other covers from Argosy, Hold Out Hope Guys, um, they were found about two years ago in an estate sale in a Pennsylvania backyard leaning up against a chain link fence for about 50 bucks a piece. Um, so they're still out there, keep looking. Um, at this time, cover, our cover artists are being paid $100, which again was down from the 250 they were going to get the start of the decade. Uh, the first of um, William Great Bear's Minions of the Moon series, Minions series, Minions of the Moon. June of 1940, uh, Max Brand, Dr. Kildare's story, another popular um, series. August 3, 1940, here's where they're really going into cost-cutting measures. New cover design, it's mostly text. Uh, obviously, they're not paying anybody going forward to do covers because they're just going to reuse the same one. Um, also at this time, they did something really stupid. Um, they, as circulation declined, they began reducing the print run. They figured if they were printing 200,000 copies and selling 100,000, so they were getting 100,000 returns, if they reduced the print run, they'd still sell the same, num same number but reduce the number of returns. But they didn't target it right across the country, so it really didn't work. All it meant was that they kept selling fewer and fewer copies because they kept printing fewer and fewer copies. 
So um, it was a bit of a spiral down. January 18th of 41, they've tried something new. It's now changed to a bed sheet, staple. It's a little bigger magazine, uses less paper, it's less expensive. However, they claim they're giving you more words. August of 41, still with the bed sheet. Um, cover illustrations resume, but they're not in full color. Again, cost savings. This particular one's by Virtual Finley, who did a couple covers in the time. June of 42, full color covers resume. Um, but they often run photographic covers as well. This particular one's by H.J. Ward, and David talked about that quite a bit. And by now, the nonfiction content's increasing. I, I suspect that it was cheaper. Um, and so we, on the cover here, there's, there's no fiction mentioned even. Um, also, publication is now down to monthly. It shifted to monthly with the May of 42 issue after 25 years as a weekly. In January 43, or actually in late 42, popular publications bought the Monty Pulps. Uh, it was announced on September 28th of 42, and this is the first popular uh, publications issue, January 43. They brought it back to pulp size, uh, briefly um, uh, resumed all fiction policy. Rogers Terrell took over as the editor. This is the August 43 issue, which was the last pulp issue featuring a story on the cover by Hamlin Daly, who was really E. Hoffman Price. And inside, there's an announcement that the next issue will be the new supersized Argosy. And it goes into great detail talking about how great it will be for fiction to have this new classy uh, look. So that's the first slick issue. At first, um, it really did uh, run a lot of the same authors, still was primarily a fiction magazine, gradually shifted away from that as time went on to become a more of a men's magazine. July 45, Steger's taken over as editor directly um, at this point, still running a lot of fiction though. Uh, April 48. February of 54, by now inside, um, it's down to four pieces of fiction. Nonfiction is by far um, uh, the majority of the content. March of 59, the top, it bills itself as the largest selling fiction fact magazine for men. Should really switch that around, fact fiction magazine for men. Now here's an interesting one. These are two cigarette lighters with the Argosy logo on them, and in one of them, a bunch of people are reading Argosy magazines. Um, these came out, I think, in the early 60s, um, but I've not been able to um, verify it. But I do know, however, that the Zippo is unconditionally guaranteed. Um, uh, in this period, February 64, RGC becomes the first uh, uh, magazine or anything to use the phrase the Bermuda Triangle. April 1970, um, they're down to running one piece of fiction per issue. Um, they do run an article about the real-life Tarzan, who some um, a white guy who lives with the South American tribe, but it's really not quite Tarzan of the Apes from October 1912 All Story, is it? Uh, June of 74, once again, still only one piece of fiction, although at least they have an article on Dick Tracy. And the final issue, November of 79, um, uh, there were some issues after this that were put out by different publishers trying to revive the title. None of them really um, ever worked uh, for more than a couple of issues. So that's the end of their 97-year run, and I think I've gone a little past my 45-minute uh, run. So thank you all very much. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.